Well, good morning to you. Glad that you are here, whether you're in the uh, sanctuary or whether you are joining us online. Kurt mentioned Facebook. There's also the option to get our live stream, as some of you are experiencing, perhaps, via our website. That's Grace FV for Fuquay, Varina, GraceFV.com. You don't have to have a Facebook account that way, if that's your preference. We're in Nehemiah. We're roughly a third of the way through the book in this series, Restoration Continued. Uh, why is it in the overarching sermon series title, Restoration Continued? Because a year ago, we were in the book of Ezra, and originally Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. We now have them kind of broken up. And there are three great leaders in these two books together. First, a wave of returnees from exile in Persia and other places. Um, under Zerubbabel, and then under uh, Ezra II, and now under Nehemiah. This is mid-5th century BC. And Nehemiah is the governor of this province, uh, province of Judea that includes uh, Jerusalem. And his task is to lead the charge in rebuilding the city wall because the gates have been burned by fire, the walls have been broken down and pushed down. It's not safe. To, to live there anymore, to, to stay there. And uh, there, there have been some attempts in, in fits and starts. Uh, there's been interruptions of the work. But Nehemiah, as you might know, uh, went to King Artaxerxes, asked for a reversal of foreign policy that had been in place for a baker's dozen years. And it was reversed in God's great providence. And uh, so Nehemiah is now on the scene. He's done reconnaissance of the job that needs to be done. The people had a mind to work, and they worked family unit by family unit, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, repairing the wall and standing in the gap, standing in the breaches, repairing a wall three feet, five feet thicker or more in various places. And now they've made some real progress. We saw last week, chapter four, opposition from without, that first they were mocked and they were ridiculed and when that didn't work then there were death threats and outsiders who had them basically surrounded the peoples of the surrounding lands said they would infiltrate and kill some of them and and strike fear in their hearts and slip out before anybody even knew and this did have an impact on their morale and so they had to work day and night in fact they had to have some of the, the workforce stopped working and completely stand guard while others worked one-handed and had their weapon at their, in the right hand or at their side. And yet the work continued. Progress still was made. Opposition from without was overcome. And so here we are today, chapter 5, and we're going to see about more opposition this time, opposition from within. We will attend to all of chapter 5 today. Uh, right now, the first 13 verses. If you're looking in your pew Bible, this starts at page 471 and goes to the next. You have a sermon outline as well for your convenience. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, 
We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of this famine, the, the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6. I was very angry, says Nehemiah. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the ta taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you've been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is God's word. Let's ask his blessing on it. Lord, this is a wonderful story, and it's an awful story. And it's fascinating. It's a fascinating study for us. And, and yet, in some ways, it's probably so remote and so distant by time and, and, and geography uh, from most of our experience that uh, even we who name the name of Christ, even we who believe that your word is your very word, it is breathed out by you, and it's profitable for instruction and, and reproof and correction and training and righteousness and all these things. Even we who, who profess that and, and, and genuinely believe it. Uh, when we read a passage like this, we, we raise an eyebrow, we have some interest, but we wonder, Lord, what hast thou to say to thy servant? What, what does this mean for us yet today? For you have seen fit to perfectly preserve your word that in it we might have everything we need for faith and practice, that we'd have everything we need to know the way of salvation through faith in Christ, the ultimate restorer, and that we might indeed walk in fear of, of you, Lord, not in, in slavish fear that shrinks back, but in, in the filial fear, the healthy respect and awe and reverence of, of sons and daughters of yours, of, of God Most High. So work in our hearts and minds now 
and let us live godly in Christ Jesus. This we pray in his name. Amen. Opposition from without, chapter 4. Last time, opposition from within. Today, chapter 5. And I've divided it, um, the passage up into three paragraphs, two of which we've already read, right? The plight of the poor, verses 1 through 5, and then righteous anger and restitution, verses 6 through 13. And we're going to talk quite a bit about uh, anger today. So the plight of the poor, there's this great outcry. For a couple of months, Nehemiah has been rallying the troops and, and inspiring the people to continue to work and they did something nobody else had been able to achieve. They finished at least the initial closing the gaps and filling the breaches and, and all that sort of thing. They did it in 52 days, working hard together, working virtually around the clock, working dawn to dusk, and then sleeping in their clothes with their weapons nearby, sleeping within the, the, the walls of the city to protect the work and to protect the people. And, Although morale ebbed and flowed a little bit, they were tired, the task seemed overwhelming and surmountable, and yet through their unity and good morale uh, in the Lord, the Lord helped them and they were able to accomplish this work. And yet at the same time, the, the fields lay uh, unattended to, perhaps. And certainly, if there was famine, there was drought and there was crop failure going on. And so the plight of the poor, there's this great outcry, multiple complaints, distress calls sent out by some of the, the poorer people who had to either work the fields or, or buy the grain or pay the Persian king's taxes, all these things. I'm not going to go into great detail about those. But things that were affected were things like land ownership. Property rights were being exchanged for food. They, they themselves said, hey, look, we're more mortgaging our future due to hunger. Um, also, there are issues of the way they interacted uh, societally with one another. Child labor, maybe. Perhaps exploitation. Forced marriage, perhaps, implied here. Um, exploitation tantamount in that regard, to prostitution, what we might term today human trafficking, um, bondage. And this was certainly untoward. The famine caused what we would call today, what we're hearing called on TV, if you're watching commercials or, or spots or fundraisers or whatever going on in the, the partial shutdown, the, the, the pandemic, they're talking about food insecurity. Well, these people had it. Kurt prayed for not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. Some of these people had that. The taxes. Plus, some of them, you know, had chipped in to do their part to help rebuild the wall. But as one commentator observes, after all, you can't eat walls. We need food. And perhaps worse yet was the practice of lending money at interest to their kinsmen. Lending money at interest to their own people, was it, was, it, was it high interest or not? That's debated some by scholars. There's a practice that is forbidden in multiple places in the Old Testament. Um, I have a hard time even pronouncing this word, usury, U-S-U-R-Y, U-S-U-R-Y, usury. Lending money at interest to their own 
brothers. Now, you were allowed to uh, do business and make a profit with the peoples of the lands, the nations, but not for the rich to get richer off the backs of the poor of their own. This is against the law of God. If you're a jotter and you want to look at some various places, uh, Exodus 22, verse 25. Exodus 22:25, Deuteronomy 23:19, and especially also Leviticus chapter 25. That that's the Jubilee chapter, verses 35 through 38, and it's very explicit about not taking advantage of the poor not exacting interest, as it's put several times, three times in this passage. It connotes deception. Uh, as I said, taking advantage. The way we might put it today is, is loan sharking. And it was considered to be immoral. There's a proverb that speaks to it, 28.8. And so, one uh, reliable commentator says this, the lenders were behaving like pawnbrokers and harsh ones at that instead of like brothers. So this was, this was very untoward. It was against the law of God. It was immoral. It was unethical in dealing with their own people, this plight of the poor. The same commentator that I seem to keep referring to, uh, Derek Kidner, says, Nehemiah's anger was the measure of his concern and love. You ever think of love flowing out of a heart of, or, or anger flowing out of a heart of love? So Kidner says, Nehemiah's anger was the measure of his concern and love. So righteous anger and restitution. A few further notes about the passage. Um, he brings public charges. It's kind of interesting. He says he took counsel with himself. I pondered over that. I read half a dozen different commentaries. He took counsel with himself. I'm going to leave it at uh, one of the commentator's uh, terms. He contemplated it carefully. He, he took stocks. Uh, others think that means he might have done a Matthew 18 sort of step and gone to individuals first prior to calling the public assembly. I, I don't know. But he gave it serious thought. He gave it serious thought, and then he decided it was so notorious that it had to be addressed among the congregation of the people. And he was calling the leadership on the carpet in the presence of all the people. Public charges brought against them. This is righteous anger. It, it, it burned greatly within him against the upper crust. Uh, they, they're speechless. It's sort of no contest. That they, have, they have no defense. It's indefensible. They, they have nothing to say on their own part. Um, we see adumbrations of the gospel here. He refers in the passage to uh, the practice of buying back their kinsmen from, that had been sold into slavery from the peoples of the lands. But he said, now it's going on in-house. Now it's going on among the Jewish people where because of these debts and the need for food and grain and such that people are entering into servitude. They're giving away the, their Hebrew children, child brides and, and workers. And they should be bought back, 
redemption from slavery. And this, of course, we think of with the New Testament eyes with which, through which we read the Old Testament, we think of redemption from slavery. In, in the Greek New Testament, one of the commonly used words for this is ex agorazo. Um, agorazo, uh, you may have heard of agoraphobia, right? The agora, agoraphobia is fear, it's not claustrophobia, it's the opposite, right? Agoraphobia is fear of open spaces. So the agora was the open place, it was the, the market and the slave market. And the beautiful picture in several places in the New Testament is those who are in bondage to, to sin are bought back. They're bought out of the slave market by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this sense, Nehemiah is a type, a type of Christ, foreshadowing the work and the ministry of Christ, who is the ultimate restorer. In verse 9, we have a per perfect example of Hebrew understatement. He says, the thing that you're doing is not good. It's not good. Understatement. Ought we not walk in fear of God, demonstrated by having respect for your fellow man, especially your countrymen, your kinsmen, and that the nations would reproach them for failing to do so? Look, the nations could rightly say, look how they treat one another. You know, with friends like this, who needs enemies kind of thing. And in verse 10, he says, abandon this practice, forsake it, stop it. And this too reminds us of the gospel of repentance, which we were led in prayer for a few minutes ago. Repentance involves the mortification of sin, putting to death the deeds of sin and living more and more unto God, living more and more unto righteousness. Because repentance... In, in our story here, repentance leads to praise and worship. Repentance then also leads to new obedience. If you truly repent, if you truly have a change of heart and mind and a disposition of your heart towards God, and God does a work in your heart, he will then empower you to live differently, to behave differently. It will affect your morals, your ethics. It will affect the way that you treat other people. And then what of this figure in verse 13 about, sh or, or near, near the end of where I read, yeah, verse 13, shaken out, shaken out the fold of your garment. What's that talking about? Well, it, it's kind of similar to uh, men, if you go to black tie events, weddings, of course, but other maybe, I don't know, galas or fundraisers, you wear, you wear a tux, right? And then, then you buckle on that thing around your waistband that's supposed to cover your belt or whatever, act as a belt and cover that area. What's that thing called? Cumberbund. You know what its nickname is? You never heard this? A crumb catcher. It's called a crumb catcher because it's pleated. So it's a, it's, it's a crumb catcher. You've got to shake that thing out. Well, similar sort of thing that in the Near East, people wore cloaks, outer flowing garments, and this is symbolic. The shaking out of the crumbs, the shaking out of a garment, 
in effect, Nehemiah, who caused these people not only to say that they would do it, but to say so in front of the priests to, to make an oath to this effect. He's having them say, in essence, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Okay? May severe repercussions and consequences fall upon me should I fail to keep that which I have promised. That's what's going on here. It's symbolic of judgment on promise breakers. We see this multiple places uh, in the Old Testament. If you're interested where, I'll give you further references after the service. But so far, we've looked at the plight of the poor, how these cries came to the attention of their governor, of their, their leader, Nehemiah, who governed in this region for a dozen years. And we've seen his righteous anger and how he is a type of Christ. He is setting things straight. He is calling people to repentance. He is calling people to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with their God. And he has involved himself in the redemption process, the buying back of those who are sold into bondage. And so he is a type of Christ in that way. And then the chapter contains this interesting other thought, this other paragraph, verses 14 through 19 about giving up your rights. Let's read that now. We haven't read it yet. I'll read aloud. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14 through the end. Uh, the editors of my, uh, who I believe it's Crossway, yeah, publishers of this ESV Bible put in there uh, a heading for this passage called Nehemiah's Generosity. I called it Giving Up Your Rights. Here we go. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor, says Nehemiah, in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, the Persian king, Twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Verse 17, moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. And he adds this note at the end. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This too is God's word. So giving up your rights. This was voluntary on the part of Nehemiah, the governor. Governors had, uh, now he did have a house built for him. We saw that earlier in the book, although he says, I was one of the people. I was one of them. I mean, I was project manager. I was supervisor. I was over the work. But my men and I, we stayed in the city. We slept in our clothes, and we were prepared for whatever contingency 
for whatever fire we might have to put out. So he was one of them. But at some point, you know, if not in advance of this mission, at some point along the way, perhaps it's been, it's been suggested after, after the initial building of the wall, he was appointed governor, he himself says, a dozen years in duration. And, and the other governors, they taxed the people further. So the Persian king taxed them, and then the local governor taxed them too. Nehemiah says he didn't do that. This is voluntary on his part. He did not utilize his full powers as governor. For example, he didn't make use of the food allowance. In fact, he paid for other people to eat at his table. So at the governor's mansion, he says 150 people, so you know, the nobles and you know, various uh, visitors and guests and things, even people from other nations. So as governor, he's a politician. And he hosted diplomats as, as they were restoring Jerusalem also to be a place of major trade in the ancient world. And so he paid for all this. Not only did he not take the allowance, he paid for it out of his own pocket. Now, one of the things that indicates to us is that he was a wealthy man. Uh, he had risen to prominence in the Persian courts. We said that he was still an occupied person. He still was expendable as wine taster to the king, but he had risen to a position of prominence in the royal court, and he had attained great wealth. I listened to one sermon by another preacher on this passage uh, uh, yesterday as I was uh, edging my sidewalk, and he did the math, and he, he, he counted up, I don't remember it, but the, the number of the oxen and uh, all the things. You know, it, it was a lot. So he was not only a wealthy person, but he also was generous, and he worked hard on the wall. Why? There are two reasons given in the passage. Ultimately, because of the fear of God, the same thing that he asked his brothers, that the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought we not to walk in the fear of God? And in the prayer of illumination near the beginning of this message, I prayed about fearing God, not the slavish kind that shrinks back, but filial, that of a son or daughter, healthy respect, reverence, and awe for God. Two reasons that he chose to voluntarily give up his rights. The primary one, verse 15, because of the fear of God. And the second one, verse 18, because it was too hard on the people. It was a burden that he himself realized they could not bear. And so there's no hypocrisy on his part. There's integrity instead. And is this not an example of Nehemiah living out the great commandment, which is what? Love God and love your neighbor. And that is how Nehemiah is doing this very thing. And I think that allows him, in verse 19, to pray that little prayer, short-form prayer, right? We've been looking at that in the book of Isaiah. I'm sorry, Nehemiah, how Nehemiah is a man of prayer. He bathes things in prayer, and, and he says quick prayers to God as well. Remember me and my good deeds. Now, this is not works salvation, but it's sort of a defense of his ministry. And 
he is asking God to remember him, to look favorably upon him. Not that he's trying to, to, to butter God up. You know, he's a politician, and, and, and somebody has suggested, well, he's writing his memoirs here, and he wants to be well thought of, because who knows how history would paint him. Now, he wants to be remembered ultimately by the greatest king, not Artaxerxes, the Persian king, but Jehovah God, the Lord of heaven. And he wants to be remembered by him as a recipient of grace and one who was faithful, a faithful servant of the Lord and a faithful steward of the ministry entrusted to him. So that's all we're going to do in terms of notes on the passage. In our remaining time, we're going to shift gears and make some New Testament elaborations and applications. Letter C in your outline. New Testament elaborations and applications. And here we are interpreting scripture with scripture. And we are seeking to make valid modern day applications and to live it out in our lives. Because the things that were written in former times are written for our instruction. And I will say this as we proceed. Uh, you've got points one through three there under letter C. Number three, we're not going to do much with. In fact, I'll speak to it right now. Number three, the example of Paul. I put homework next to it because I'm not going to take more time. This corresponds to that which we just finished off. Nehemiah voluntarily giving up his rights as governor, verses 14 through 19. That parallels to number three here, the example of the apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, I want you to read that for yourselves, and I want you to spend some time in it, another time, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow. It's about the apostle describing how he voluntarily gives up his rights at various points in his ministry to not make full use of his rights. Now, he, he says here in 1 Corinthians 9 and other places in the New Testament, Paul repeatedly teaches about the principle that it is right for gospel workers to receive a living, uh, an income, off of gospel ministry. But in chapter 9, he says that he did not always make full use of that right. Now, again, it was voluntary. And it was so that he would place no stumbling block to some of those to whom he was ministering. No stumbling block before them. I'd like you to look at that more on your own. So what we have remaining is points one and two. And then in conclusion, I'll have one thought more. Uh, point, points one and two. Our faith leads us to care for the poor. And then I want to consider for you for a few minutes what makes you angry. Our faith leads us to care for the poor. If you can, turn to James 1, whether that's on an electronic device or a hard copy Bible. It matters not to me. But I'd like you to turn to James 1 and to keep it open. Uh, usually I flag mine. Here we go. Um, our faith leads us to care for the poor. Let me start reading in James 1 at verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Ever have the experience? 
But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It is right for us to make application of God's word to our relationships, to our conduct, to our business dealings. If anyone, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled is the classic text, right? These words may ring familiar. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Keep James 1 open, if you would. Our faith leads us to care for the poor. Were we to continue in James, I've got other references there on your note-taking outline, from chapter 5, which specifically deals with unfair wages and labor practices, from chapter 2, about the relationship between faith and works and the fact that faith without works is dead, and this causes us to consider the gospel according to James, who is not teaching that salvation is sort of a combo deal, that you add good work, works along with your faith in order to attain to salvation, but rather the one who truly has received salvation from on high, from, from God, is granted the gift of faith by which we repent and believe. We turn away and forsake and put to death our sins more and more. And we turn to God and we live more and more unto righteousness. And this is evident in our lives. It's the verse 10 out of Ephesians 2, right? We all memorize verses 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved. In verse 10, where are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. So good works, according to James, are the fruit of faith, the evidence of faith. The proof is in the pudding. And this is the gospel. This is how we come to know God, recognizing that there is a substitute, a sin bearer, Jesus, the righteous, who perfectly obeyed the Father, who died that sacrificial death, who rose triumphantly from the grave, and we place our trust in him. And I urge you to do that today, if you've not done that before or if you've strayed from him, and to continue to trust in him day by day. Um, part of the lesson of Nehemiah 5 is how to handle your money. I think it's undeniable if you study the passage. It, it's how to handle your money. Why? Because how you handle your money reflects the character and condition of your heart. Jesus had a lot to say about that himself. And so I'd ask you this morning, <clears throat> does your checking account demonstrate love for God and for neighbor as Nehemiah's did? Are you a faithful steward of the resources God has entrusted to you? As an individual, now as a church, what are some things we can be involved in as a church if our faith indeed leads us to care for the poor? I have two suggestions. One is ESL, English as a Second Language. It's resumed meeting uh, in person. There's as many as a dozen students involved. It's Monday nights, a 6.30 start. And you can see Dave Rosser over here if you'd like to know more about that opportunity.
The other one is uh, Blake Kraft has some contact and association with a ministry to the homeless and needy in the area. It's termed the Underground Railroad. And um, I meant to get to Blake this week and to talk with him about that, and I just didn't get that done. So connect with Blake if you'd like to know more there. Our faith leads us to care for the poor, number one. Number two, what makes you angry? Uh, what makes you angry? Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called A Time for Anger, The Myth of Neutrality. A Time for Anger, The Myth of Neutrality. And uh, I think it was James Boyce that said, actually, it was a, a great book title and uh, uh, not a very good book. It was Boyce's opinion. But it's a great book title, A Time for Anger. Because I, I ministered with someone years ago who said that he never got angry. And in fact, I think in his teaching indicated that it was wrong to be angry. What does the Bible say about this? We don't have time for an exhaustive or comprehensive study, but I am going to mention a few things. Your Bible should still be open to James 1. We read earlier from verse 22 onward. What about verses 19 through 21 with regard to anger? Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There's a lot in there. I'm just touching on the anger part for right now. Be slow to anger. The anger of man is unrighteous. So what makes you angry? Usually it's the sorts of things that make us angry, sorts of things that make me angry. Usually it has to do with other people or circumstances or ourselves. Uh, but sometimes we get ticked at perceived slights, at personal offenses, and we're, we fail the love test of 1 Corinthians 13. We're irritable and we're touchy, and we are quick to take into account a wrong suffered. And that's what I believe James is talking about here. It's not wrong to be angry. Your next reference, we're not going to go there, but Ephesians 4 is the one about be ye angry and yet do not sin about not letting the sun go down on your anger so it shouldn't burn long within you, and give no opportunity to the devil, don't give him a foothold in your life through expressing your anger wrongly or through nursing your anger, through worrying over your anger like a dog with a bone. So the scriptures do not teach that it is wrong to be angry. We are made in God's image, and that includes our emotional makeup, our emotional affect, and that includes anger. It's from God. The problem is our emotions are not trustworthy or they're not reliable. They're not utterly destroyed, but they are marred by the fall. And so we often get angry about the wrong things, and we express it in the wrong way. But there are some things that ought to make you angry, like uh, Schaefer's uh, book title, um, A Time for Anger, The Myth of Neutrality. 
there are some things that ought to make you angry. So, so we've attended to points one through three under letter C. Your outline is finished, but I want to spend just a few minutes more talking about what angers Jesus, because I think it's instructive for us. If the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, but God gets angry, and he made us with an emotional makeup that includes anger, Let's look for just a moment at what angers Jesus. And I've identified three things. I believe there are more. Uh, what comes to mind? First of all, you may already be thinking of the temple cleansing. John chapter 2 in verse 15. I wish we had time to go to the passage. But in short order, let me just say he braided a whip. The temple cleansing, right? He, he, he drove out the money changers. And then his disciples remembered the Old Testament says, zeal for thy house will consume me. But what's interesting to me is that he braided the whip. What does that mean? It means as he walked around and observed, this was a deliberate action on the part of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He didn't fly off the, the handle. This was not reactionary. This was not letting his emotions get the best of him. It was premeditated. Now, why was he so angry? Uh, the money changers in the temple, we could spend a fair bit of time on that. Well, you, you know parts of it, right? My house should be a house for what instead? For prayer, not, not, not making money. And, and, and what else does it say? My house should be a house for prayer for what? For all people, for all the nations. I uh, just don't have time to unpack it, but they were making it difficult in the exchange of money and exacting a hefty fee for, for the privilege. They were making it difficult for the God-fearer, the sojourner who wanted to follow Yahweh. They were making it difficult to come to the Lord. The thing that you're doing is not good. Uh, the second instance of Jesus' anger we would find, uh, but by the way, the temple cleansing, John 2.15. Uh, the second one comes from Mark 3, verse 5. You might remember the account of the man with the withered hand. And there's this question about healing on the Sabbath. Was the Sabbath made to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? That may be familiar with you. You may know that Jesus healed the man. You may know that Jesus thereby demonstrated that he is Lord of the Sabbath. But do you know that in Mark 3, 5, it says he looked around at them, them being particularly the Pharisees, and he looked at them with anger, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. That's what made Jesus angry. That they wanted to, the, their power and to stay in control. They wanted to stick with their rabbi's interpretation of things rather than to be merciful and compassionate and understand the big picture and to recognize one who is in their midst, the Son of God. A third thing that angered Jesus because you might think, well, yeah, Pharisees, they deserved it. They had it coming. Money changers, they had it coming. 
Pharisees, man, those guys were jerks. Yeah, whip up on them, Jesus. I guess pun not intended. You whitewashed tombs. But the third thing that makes Jesus angry, Mark 10, 14, his own disciples. Angry at his own disciples? Now he rebukes them repeatedly. By the way, the only thing I recall really, other than what we're about to see, that Jesus ever rebuked his disciples for is one thing, lack of faith. That's the only thing that I see in the Gospels. Jesus, I could be wrong. You want to show me where I'm wrong? I'm open to that. But that's the only thing I see elsewhere in the Gospels, him rebuking. Where is your faith? Why did you doubt? But here in Mark 10, 14, he's mad at his own disciples. Why? You remember? Parents are bringing their kids to Jesus. But the disciples were rebuking him. Don't, don't bother the master. Kids are inconvenient. It's one of my jokes with my wife. We watch some TV shows. Some, you know, they're all the same, right? Whether it's setting is in a law court or a hospital or a firehouse. or where they're, they're all the same. It's all a soap opera, right? Drama of who loves who and who's nice to who and uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. And one of my jokes to my wife is children are inconvenient. You know, kids come in for a little quick minute and then they go off because kids are inconvenient. And that, that's sort of the disciples' attitude here. Kids are inconvenient. Don't bother the teacher. You know, we're doing serious grown-up stuff here. Um, it says that Jesus was indignant, friends. It says he was indignant. He was grieved and incensed. He was greatly displeased. And we know what he said. Do not hinder them. Paul says a similar thing, different word. There's interesting words used here in the Greek New Testament, but Paul says a similar thing, 2 Corinthians 11. So I'll wrap it up. I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. What makes you angry? What makes Jesus angry? Maybe we need to do some comparison. Maybe we need to, to search our hearts before the Lord. This Jesus who becomes angry is the compassionate Savior who wept over the city that Palm Sunday and is the same Savior who by Friday went to the cross. Let's pray. Lord, too often we fail the love test. We take into account easily a wrong suffered. And we are quick to question the people around us on their motives. When we would like them to give us the benefit of the doubt in our behavior. Lord, let us lay our lives before you in the healthy fear of you. And let us treat our fellow man accordingly. And let us... let. let, let hospitality begin and excel among the people of God as we give preference to one another in honor in Jesus' name.